Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 once more. And so verse 12 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Uh, the concept, again, a concept that once was held dear in this land, the concept that local church life is vital for the believer has fallen into hard times in recent years. Once generally accepted, uh, the church played a role in the center of the lives of people uh, essentially in every community. Even those who did not have a living, vibrant relationship with Christ still understood the benefits of being part of a local church. Now, of course, I understand that tens of thousands still attend church nationwide, and many of them would even report that the church is a good thing. But I think we all appreciate that all is not well in people's understanding of God's will for believers with respect to church. And so whatever they think about it, uh, I think there are very clear deficiencies in the minds of many as to the importance of the church in their regular lives. Of course, there were some in, in various schools of thought uh, with regards to their ecclesiology, that, or their eschatology, sorry, they thought that, well, the church age could end prior to Christ's return. And so there were those who held uh, various views regarding the benefit of the church at that point. Others have adopted a kind of a, a virtual church mindset. Of course, there are those who are providentially hindered from being in the house of God, but others, they become very comfortable uh, with enjoying church from their own homes. There are others, uh, and this seems to be science fiction, uh, but it's not very far removed from possibility, the idea of a virtual reality church. You know, these funny goggles that people can put on. Well, you could pick your worship style, you could then pick your preacher, and you could have a custom-designed church experience. Now, I'm not sure that's all that far-fetched. It would certainly appeal to many that they could pick and choose what they like from various church styles and come with a church that is just for themselves. Because all of these things, they give the idea that church is something that is consumed. You go to church to consume something, to take in something, rather than church life being something you're committed to and involved with. But as you come to the New Testament, you see that the apostle emphasizes the importance of local church fellowship, local church uh, congregations coming together to encourage each other in the things of God. And here, even in this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is teaching those who are waiting for Christ's return the importance of church life. 
So even if the Lord is about to come imminently, church is still deemed to be important to the Apostle Paul. And again, there was all manner of misunderstandings regarding the Lord's return. But the Lord's return was at the forefront of these people's minds. And they still were committed to the importance of church life. But Paul, of course, is reinforcing this. And so verse 12 and following, he's given some instruction regarding the Lord's teaching about local church fellowship. And I just two things I want to highlight with you and to you tonight. First of all, I want to show you the people, the people in their relationships in the local church. And then the positive things, the positive benefits that arise out of this relationship. So first of all, then, the people in their relationships. Verse 12 and verse 13, these verses assume the presence of elders and members in a local church. Of course, in Philippians, Paul begins with words addressed to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. And he gives these sort of three categories of people in the church. Uh, there are the saints, out of whom are the bishops and the deacons. Now, deacons aren't mentioned here. It's not a purpose. But you do see again this similar assumption that there are those in the church who form the membership of the church, and there are those who exert authority and leadership in the church. There are those who are over you in the Lord, verse number 12. And I think what you see here is language that relates to the eldership. First of all, you see the elders here. The language of verse 12, they are those who are over you in the Lord. They are those who labor among you, and they are those who admonish you. Again, all of those three terms, again, being consistent with the concept of eldership taught elsewhere by, by Paul. Of course, as Paul called the elders from Ephesus to meet with him in Acts chapter 20, he told them that they were overseers made such by the Holy Ghost, and as overseers, they were to feed the church of God. Overseer, the word of bishop, and again to feed, having that idea of being a shepherd of the flock. The church as a flock of sheep and elders appointed to serve as overseers and to pastor or to shepherd the flock of God. If you turn across to 1 Peter chapter 5, you'll again see that uh, these three terms that are used, elder, overseer, and shepherd, are used together in 1 Peter chapter 5. And the verse number 1 where he says, The elders which are among you I exhort... He's addressing elders here, and Peter puts himself in the same category. But then he says later on, feed the flock of God, shepherd, pastor the flock of God, taking the oversight thereof. The oversight there, again, is a term connected to the word of bishop, uh, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we'll see very shortly. And so you have the bishop idea, you have the shepherd-pastor idea, and you have the eldership idea in these verses. And so when you think of the language used in Thessalonians, they are over you, they labor among you, they admonish you. Again, I think it is very clear that Paul is referring here to the eldership. Note the three terms that are, that are used. Let's begin with the concept of being over you in the Lord. The two words, over you there, they are connected to the very concept of rule. They're connected grammatically. They're connected in the terms uh, that are used. So, you, know, you turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And again, I trust you've already seen and recognized. 
And that there is this parallel, there's a connection between the uh, bishop, the pastor, the elder. Well, part of their role is to rule. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. Or sorry, verse 4, uh, regarding the qualifications of the bishop, the bishop mentioned verse 1, and then verse 4, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Again, the assumption there is, in the parallels of verse number 5, you rule your own house, and therefore you are qualified to then take care of the church of God. And so to rule is to take care, and to take care involves the ruling of the elder over the church. It is a matter where there is, again, authority and submission required from uh, the members, elders appointed to be over you in the Lord. And then you've got the other term, the word for labor. Again, back to First Thessalonians. It says there, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. Labor. The word work is used in verse number 13. And that's actually, it's a very vivid word in the original that has the idea of working unto weariness. Again, that's part of what it is to, again, to rule the church. It is to engage yourself in working unto weariness. Again, as many of you will work in your, in your vocations, you're working hard to the point of being tired at the end of the day. And so those who labor among you in the Lord, they are to work unto weariness. It is, of course, their duty to labor in the word and prayer. And you get back from Acts chapter 6, but over in 1 Timothy 5, uh, the language used is laboring in the word and doctrine. And so the elders, again, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Again, from that verse, we get the idea of elders who are teaching elders and elders who are ruling elders. And of course, the teaching elder also has the, uh, the role of ruling also. Now, these things are familiar. I'm not going to dwell upon them now, but I'm simply noting to you that here in 1 Thessalonians 5, you have language that is consistent with the eldership. The third term, then, is this word to admonish. Verse 12 again, over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, we often have admonishment as quite a negative term, and we'll see it later on in verse number 14, and it has a, a negative connotation there, an idea of warning. But it's also, in a very simple way, it has the idea of putting something into someone's mind. The word has that idea, putting into their mind. So it's not about just arbitrary authority, but it has the idea of gentle and faithful correction and admonition in these things. Turn across to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again, here you see an example of this admonition. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Where it says there, and the servant of the Lord, verse 24, 2 Timothy 2, 24, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. 
It's the example of those who are teaching false doctrine, and the Lord's servant must not strive, but be gentle, patient, meekness, instructing those. And so that's the sense of the admonition here. It is the idea of putting in people's minds what they ought to know. It may be by way of reminder at times. You see, Peter refers to that often. Or it may be new information, things they did not know before, but they ought to know now, and therefore they correct their thinking or their action in light of the admonition they receive. And so we, did, we certainly see elders here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But we also therefore see, by implication, members. Uh, here we have the very simple thought of voluntary submission. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, there is the exhortation that we are to obey those that have the rule over us. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. Again, the overseers, they rule, and the only proper response to overseers who are to rule, uh, ordained of God to rule, is to obey and to submit yourselves. Now, like every single position of submission in the Word of God, that submission is qualified by submission to Christ. You only obey and you only submit so long as you're keeping the will of God, positively doing the will of God, and negatively not doing things against the will of God. But there is still that principle of submission. Now, I, I personally I don't think submission should be assumed. Or use of membership in that term is the way in which we give people the opportunity to voluntarily express their submission. It's one of the key reasons we have that, that idea in our church. It is, in essence, people saying publicly, yes, I am under the submission of the oversight of this church. But those who are under this oversight, those who voluntarily submit to the oversight, well, they have their own duties also. Look what it says there, verse number 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. You're to know your overseers. This is a very, very common verb, this idea of knowing. And you've got to be careful, what does it actually mean? Well, John Gill tells us this, I think it's helpful. That is not to learn their names and know their persons. So it's not known who they are. It's not a matter that we point them out and say, well, here's our elders, you should, you should know who they are, and here's their names. For as Gill says, they could not but know them in this sense, since they dwelt and labored among them, and were continually employed in instructing them. But the sense here of this word is that they would make themselves known to them, and converse freely and familiarly with them. Those are Gill's words that so they might know the state of their souls and be better able to speak a word in season to them. So what you have here is the concept of knowledge in the Word of God that predisposes or presupposes relationship. But the members are to live in vital living relationship with their elders and open-heartedness. And again, you'll, you'll find in some circles now, there's an eldership that is aloof and distant. They keep themselves apart from the congregation. And the congregation kind of get the idea that well, they, they, they cannot really freely discuss things with their elders. And that's not the case here, but you can see it happening in some situations. There's an aloofness, a distance in the eldership. But there can also be times when the people in a church will put up walls and barriers between them and the elders. 
And they won't permit any knowledge between them and the elders. They keep themselves themselves in such privacy that there is no way that the elders can properly fulfill their responsibility to labor and to admonish them in the Lord. And so there's got to be this open-heartedness in the church of Christ. It's not always easy. We all have our different personalities. We all have different spheres of privacy and those things that we're comfortable sharing and those things we're not. But in essence, we should at least have uh, the idea in our minds that it's important and beneficial to be open with each other in the work of God. And that you're prepared to even share things that are challenging and difficult uh, to you in the work of the Lord. And so you should know, know them which labor among you. And I say that does, that goes both directions. The other thing then is to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. The esteeming of those in authority. Honor to those whom honor is due. It certainly involves the idea of due respect. And it also, for those who are, again, laboring in the word and doctrine, it also involves the concept of remuneration. But it is love for the individual. Esteem them highly in love. Love for the individual and thankfulness for the work. Thankful for their work's sake. Now, if you do not value the work of the elder, you have the tendency not to value the individual. And so it is important that, again, those in the congregation, when it comes to their response to the eldership, is they must understand what the elder does, and then be thankful to God for that work. And we'll say more of that in a few moments. But there are those, again, in the eldership and in the pastorate who perhaps feel undervalued. Again, when that's the case, they should be careful to ensure that they're doing the work required of them. Again, this idea, these things are reciprocal. Uh, respect is earned. I don't think respect comes simply because someone takes an office or a name to themselves, but it is respect for their work's sake. So you are to know them and to esteem them. The end of verse 13, then I believe, gives an exhortation that goes to both of these parties. Remember, we're thinking about people in their relationships in the church. And you'll see in your authorized version, the word and there is in italics. And so it wasn't there, therefore it's not in the, in the original. It's simply this exhortation, be at peace among yourselves. And I think the implication is that we are to be at peace, elders and members and members and elders. Of course, that implies there's peace among the members also. But I think the particular exhortation here is that there is no division between the overseers and the members who are under the overseers, but there is unity between those two groups in the church. And that's very, very important. Churches struggle when there is a division between the overseers and the members. Uh, you think, of course, of the exhortation of Paul to the Ephesians that were to walk worthy of the vocation, worth recalled, all lowliness and meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, often, often we think of that unity amongst the members. But here I'm asking you to think about it in terms of unity between the members and the elders. It reminds us that all of us are responsible in the church to preserve unity. 
And divisions can come in a church from the membership, but divisions can also come from the eldership. And we who serve as elders, we must guard ourselves that we do not cause division in the church by things we may say or do in the Lord's work. And so when you think of this, these two verses and you think about the responsibilities and the relationships between people in the church, surely it ought to cause us to pray. So only the Lord can enable us to do these things. So much, of the, so much of this is against our nature. We, we kick against the need to submit to authority. We are quick to pursue our own agendas and not to live at peace among each other. We, are tendency, we have a tendency towards sluggardliness. And that's as true for elders as it is for anyone else. And so you read these verses uh, and you get to the end of those verses. It's a good time to simply pray, Lord, help us in our church lives. That's something regarding the, uh, again, the people in their relationships. But what about the positives that arise out of this relationship? Well, verse 14 tells us, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Now who are the brethren here? Verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, now, the natural thing would be to think that the brethren here refer to the same company as verse number 12. And I'll be quite honest with you, many of the commentators and writers take that position. And they therefore take the idea that the duties of verse number 14 apply to every member in the congregation. They're all to do these things, to warn, to comfort, to support now, granted, there is application to the wider body, but many of these duties relate to those who are called of God to serve as pastors, and also, if you think of Galatians chapter 6, those who are spiritual. And so the idea is that there are those within the church who are not qualified for these particular functions, and there are those who are set apart of God. Now, again, I'm not seeking to excuse the membership. We all have a responsibility to help each other in the Lord's work. But I think the emphasis here has a particular focus upon those who are over you in the Lord, verse 12. And I say that in part because the word warn that's used in verse 14 is the same word for admonish in verse 12. And so he's saying, Know them which are labored among you, over you, and admonish you. And then he goes, Now I exhort you, brethren, admonish them that are unruly. And the connection seems to be that he has in mind a group within the church, these elders, who as brethren have particular responsibility to labor. And when you take the idea of verse 14, be patient towards all men, how that is consistent with the words of 2 Timothy 2, the servant of the Lord must be patient. And so I think the idea here is that the pastors and the elders of the church have these particular responsibilities and the members are therefore to benefit from this. This is the benefit, the positives that arise out of this relationship. So the elders are to address particular needs. Within a given church, there are people with various problems, and there are problem people. And there are problems, and there are problems. There are the unruly mentioned here, referring to those who are rebellious and contentious. Uh, they're not submissive. Now, this is not good, and they are to be warned. 
And so it says, warn them that are unruly. You'll see in the second letter, they are the disorderly brethren who will not submit to the teaching of the apostle, and they are to be warned by uh, the Lord's servants. There's the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. Again, it's a word that we're not familiar with, really, either the original or the English idea. It has a sense of being faint-hearted. And those who are faint-hearted, they are to be comforted. They are to know the sympathy of church leadership, the support in that sense of church leadership. And then as a general, the, the weak are mentioned here, verse 14, support the weak. Again, a general term speaks of illness, sometimes used a physical illness, but more than likely spiritual illness in view here. Those who have no strength, and what are the elders to do? They're to support them. It has the idea of coming alongside and literally holding them up. That's the picture here. As you would with some of the, perhaps a leg injury, and before they got the crutches, you would go alongside and you'd hold them up. They're weak, they're about to fall down, but the elders come alongside and support them. All this, of course, done with patience. Be patient toward all men. We need our churches to function on a personal level, addressing the individual burdens and troubles and needs. We need elders, again, to have that, that eye to the individual Church not just a place for preaching and for singing, but a place where those with particular needs have those needs addressed for their spiritual benefit. We also see the need to uh, not only address particular needs, but to encourage a forgiving spirit. He says that, See that none render evil for evil unto any man. Again, this idea of putting away bitterness and wrath, but forgiving one another. Not evil for evil, but those who commit evil against us that we're prepared to forgive them. That's for the good of the church, for the peace of the church. And then finally, they are to promote godliness in all and to all. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Be good among yourselves. Do good to others beyond the confines of the church family. Let him eschew evil and do good. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let us do good unto all men. Galatians chapter 6. It's a matter of doing good in the church and outside the church. Part of faithful church living. Even towards your enemies. Do good to them that hate you, says Christ in Matthew chapter 5. And so you see the benefits of a church that functions like this. Those with needs are supported and strengthened. The church functions well for the glory of God in the church and in the community. Um, we need the Lord to help us in these things. Christ died, shed his blood to save sinners, and he gathers saved sinners into churches. And because it is the blood-stained will of Christ that local churches serve his sheep, enabling the sheep and encouraging the sheep, Christ's will is the church's function in this regard because Christ has committed care of his sheep to the church. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. 
you will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.